Welcome to Dear DO, the podcast about all things medical school and beyond. I'm the host, Michael Garrison, and I'm accompanied by Dr. Howard Harrell. And today we are going to talk through application process for medical school. When I heard about your podcast, I remembered that Dear John show on TV about a serial killer. But this oh. is different, right? This is different, um, but also you can think about the Dear John song by Taylor Swift if you want. I know how big of a fan you are. (laughs) Huge Taylor Swift fan. I just can't afford the tickets. Yeah. Well, you've done, I know you've done really amazing in uh, osteopathic school, and that's coming to an end soon. And you're going on to neurology? Fingers crossed. I mean, match date hasn't happened by the time that we're recording this, but... Um, fingers crossed that I match into neurology. <laughs> I don't think you'll have a problem. Thank you. I don't think you'll have a problem. Well, so I'm actually an MD. So I guess one interesting thing from my perspective, or that I'm sure a lot of listeners who are thinking about medical school would be interested in is like, what's the difference between an MD and a DO? Why did you choose one versus the other? That sort of thing. Did you apply to both? And you know, how many schools did you apply to? Those sorts of things. And, and ultimately, you know, why choose DO? I know a lot of students don't apply to MD schools increasingly now and just choose DO as a primary route. And obviously, many apply to both. And uh, and some probably only apply to MD schools. So what do you think the big differences are at this point between the MD degree and the DO degree? I think that there's several factors that play into this. Um, I think one of them, especially for me, was confidence coming out of undergrad, I was not very confident in my application and I had been told that it's supposedly easier to get into DO school. And so I actually applied to both. Uh, I didn't get any MD interviews um, and I was only interviewed by two DO schools, but I was lucky enough to be accepted to both. Um, I think that a lot of people only apply to DO school because of the message behind it and if those people have that calling. So a lot of people really identify with the with the message of holistic healing, that the body is all interconnected, that it's capable of self-healing, and they really enjoy the physical manipulation of patients. For me, that was something that I was open to, but not something that I was necessarily seeking out. Um, I d- identified with the message enough to go to school there and learn about it. Unfortunately, I'm not very, very skilled with osteopathic manipulation, so I do not practice it on on the daily. But I definitely think that it's multifactorial and you just have to find what you feel most comfortable in. I'm a lot older than you, but I, I do think when I applied to med school, there was definitely probably a gap in competitiveness between the two, but I'm not sure that that's as true today as it once was. You know, I don't, I think that you're 100% right. I think that it's getting increasingly hard to get into MD schools and DO schools. Another thing though, is the fact that MD schools are staying about the same size in class size, whereas DO schools are rapidly expanding. They're capable of expanding. Yeah. And I think one way to think about it too. So, you know, I've taught hundreds of MD students and hundreds of DO students over the years. And I've told you this before, you're outstanding compared to any of those. You're one of the best students that I've that I've ever uh, taught. You don't have to say thank you. It's just true. <laughs> but I do think one way I think about it is you mentioned class size. You know, let's say a, an allopathic school has 100 students and an osteopathic school has 250. You, you could compare the top 100 of the two, and I think you'd find 
pretty similar students. Yeah, and I think that that's reflected in board scores. So for allopathic schools, they have to take step one and step two. For DO schools, you can take step one and step two. Our, our required course or board exam rather is level one and level two. I personally took both, um, but the scores that you get back for step one and step two, you're being compared across the board to MD students. So that really shows you that the top percent is the top percent no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're going to an MD school or a DO school. And ultimately, students enter into the same pool of resident candidates and going to the same residencies. And that's getting closer than it's ever been because the osteopathic and allopathic residency processes are merging, right? Yeah. So they recently merged, I believe, two years ago. Um, I can be fact-checked on that. But the residency has just merged, and I think that it went really well considering COVID and everything like that. Um, I'm interested to see how how this year is going to go considering a lot of residency interviews are online still. Um, But we will see... (laughs) Yeah. Well, the point being that once you've graduated from that residency, you're whatever doctor you're going to be, and you've gone through the same training and pathway, whether you've gone to an osteopathic school or an allopathic school. So Exactly. I think that there are some some residency programs that are traditionally MD versus DO, um, so that stigma still exists, but it's diminishing. Yeah. Well, okay, so you obviously were a successful matriculant to your osteopathic school. And I think a lot of people who are thinking about school, whether it's osteopathic or allopathic, obviously, are certainly going to want to know, like, what kinds of things are important? What do schools look at beyond just grades? So a lot of advice out there about how important prior job experience is in medicine or volunteering, things like that, or what kinds of extracurriculars or even how important is research? What do you think about sort of that, those sorts of extracurricular or the things beyond grades? Yeah, so for me, um, I didn't personally know any physicians. I didn't have any mentorship in undergrad, so I didn't know what was important. Looking back, um, I had personally, I had a job all throughout undergrad. I worked full-time and part-time. Like in the beginning, I did full-time. In the end there, I did part-time to focus more on my grades, but... Was that was that in healthcare? No, I worked in the hospitality industry. I was the front desk clerk of a hotel. And I think that that was a really unique experience and played very well with my interview process in med school just because it's something interesting to talk about that's not school-related. And I think that that's really yeah. what you want to see. And you interact with people. And which is 99% of our job, unless you're a pathologist. I was just about to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So job experience, but it could have been in healthcare too. A lot of people certainly work as CNAs or EMTs or, you know, things in the hospital or medical care side of things. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I was a volunteer. I think that volunteering is a great way to get some healthcare on your med school application. Um, it just, it is what you put in, right? Like anything, um, volunteering, volunteering can be very minimal and with minimal effort, or you can put, put your all into it. So I think that's something to consider. Yeah. And then what about things 
I don't know, different different schools have plenty of different clubs or things like that, which a lot of times end up being opportunities for leadership. Yeah, my school had AMSA, which is American Medical Student Association, but it was for pre-med students. And they hosted a lot of events and it had a lot of opportunities within each event to have some sort of leadership. So I was able to have at least one opportunity to show that I could be a leader of a event. And did, did you have research or do you wish you had more? Or? Yeah, I wish that I had more. Um, I didn't really, I was very shy in my classes and my class sizes were very large. <laughs> I think I had over 300 people in a lot of my classes. Um, so it was very hard to get to know every professor. And so I never did research at the school, but after graduating during my gap year, I pursued literature reviews with the field that I thought that I wanted to go into. Um, But it's nice to have that experience. It looks good on medical school applications. And then it even follows you to residency applications. I still get asked about the papers that I wrote back then. I think research for undergrads who are considering med school isn't as important maybe as a lot of people think it is because it really just means you had a certain type of major. You know, you majored in some biological science or something like that and worked in a lab. And the research you did probably wasn't groundbreaking or earth shattering. Whereas you might have majored in the humanities or something else and not really have even ever been a candidate to do research because of the nature of the different undergrad curricula. So I was mostly a humanities major myself, so I certainly had no research coming out of of undergrad. And there's a lot of studies that that point to the fact that well-rounded students who have humanities majors are very competitive, if not better, med students when they get there. So I don't think everybody has to be a science, biology, pre-med major either. What was your major? Uh, I think that that's a great point. Uh, Personally, I was a biology major. I was a double major with psychology for a brief moment. (laughs) But I think that that's so true. It gives you so much more to talk about in your interview as well. Just the fact that if you were a non-science major, I knew somebody who was an anthropology major. I knew somebody who was um, like a language major. And it just makes your whole application different. And I think that that's what they're looking for. And a lot of evidence says that people who are just have good reading abilities and who can, you know, read read a text and understand it. And that doesn't mean you have to be a science major. You do have to take some science prerequisites, though. Like It's not like you can just do Latin or Greek, which is what I did. You do have to take some prerequisites. So in my days, those included like organic chemistry, physics, calculus. Do you know what the current list is? I have not reviewed the current, the most current list. Um, I just kind of glanced at it and it looked basically the same as when I was in school, which is biology one and two, chem one and two, orgo one and two. And then within that, it actually requires that you take so many non-science courses, um, which is really good. That just shows the what you were just talking about, which is that they're looking for someone who's well-rounded and can participate in both kinds of activities. Yeah, I think the well-rounded part is important um, from my perspective. Again, depending on what kind of doctor you might be, but our job is to be human beings who communicate with other human beings. Yeah. And that that requires a lot more than being able to draw a Punnett square or something. So what about hobbies? 
Well, I was just about to say, I'm not sure how much Cities of the World or History of Jazz went yeah, yeah. to being a doctor. But um, I to, to go back to the, your question about hobbies, I think that be, having hobbies outside of school is the number one thing that's going to keep coming up for you. So if you don't have a hobby, you need one. I don't care what it is, um, but they love to talk about hobbies, especially unique ones, things that make you not just another robot. I think for me, hobbies, like you said, it's something that when I see it on the application of the candidate, it is often just interesting to talk about. And I learn a lot about them, but it also maybe speaks to that well-rounded thing again. If you've got some unique and interesting hobbies and time to do that, and you've also pursued your college curriculum and done well in that, you probably have um, some some gas to give in terms of the increased ardor that medical school is going to require. But you know, if you had no hobbies and no social life and no activities and you barely made it through college, I'm not sure medical school is going to be easy for you. So I think it speaks to that too. And I also like hobbies that show that a person has just discipline and commitment and interest and, you know, a willingness to do something they're not required to do, frankly. So. Yeah. Also for mental health outlets. Sure things that will help prevent you from burnout. I think that it's really easy to lose your hobbies when you're in medical school because of how much stuff that you're forced to do all the time. So to have something that's almost like an outlet for you is so important. Well, obviously you've got to make reasonably good grades and you've got to make a reasonably good MCAT score. So those things are clearly important, but, but how important are they? Is that the whole picture? I definitely do not think that it's the whole picture. I think that I'm living proof of that. Um, (laughs) I didn't know how to study in undergrad. My GPA might have suffered a little bit. And then when it came to the MCAT, I had horrible test anxiety. I think that that's very relatable. I think that a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll do their practice exams. They'll get, you know, 515, a 510 on their MCAT. And then when they take the real thing, they get just above 500. I think that that's a very common phenomenon. So I think that your application needs to lean on those other things of supporting things like jobs, volunteering and hobbies like we've been talking about. Um, I also wanted to talk about the fact that there are myths that you can only take the MCAT one time. It's a one and done process. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) I know people have taken it three, four times and still I mean, they're they're applying for residency right alongside me, so I think that that's proof. Now, that 500 is the new average on the MCAT, right? Yes, that's I think that's the peak of the bell curve. Um, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, which is scary because sub fifth sub 500 is supposedly bad in quotes, um, but that's literally 50th percentile. Yeah, of a bunch of smart people who took a test. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so if 500 is the new average, what kinds of scores are osteopathic schools accepting on average? On average, I would say 500 or 505. Um, I know that a a pretty decent amount of schools are welcoming with sub 500 scores. I know many of of my personal friends have disclosed their scores to me and you would never know. That's the thing. You know, you're talking to someone, they're so smart, they're so achieved, and they can openly admit like, oh, I didn't score that well on this test. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And I think that 
eliminating a lot of the shame around these scores and these GPAs and stuff like that when they don't, they're not the end all be all of your application. And for many of those folks, that was the nth time they took the test. That yeah. was their best score. Exactly. If you're above average and you're a well-rounded applicant with some extracurriculars, you should feel pretty confident about your chances. Yeah, and even if you're below average, you can still have a, a reasonable shot at a lot of schools. Yep, I think that if you're below average, I would still give it the good old college try. And <laughs> and I think that what I didn't know going in that I wish I would have known is that you can email these programs and just it just convey your interest in them because what they want to know is that you want to be there. Now, you mentioned earlier not really having known a doctor or, or having had much guidance as an undergrad, sort of a mentor, if you will, about how to navigate the process. And I know that's kind of what you're wanting to do with this podcast is give back to people what yes. you really didn't have for yourself as a guide of, of the reality of navigating these waters. But mentorship, I think, is very important for all stages of our career. Getting into medical school clearly is something where a mentor would be very helpful. Yeah. And I think that the biggest thing that you can do to find mentorship where you are in person is to ask for it. I think that that's something that I didn't do. I was afraid that I was going to be told no, but honestly, that's the worst thing that could have happened is some, somebody tells you no, and then you just move on. Um, better, it's easier said than done. But when I started working, I found at least one person who was willing to sit down with me. She was a, she was a DO and I met her at work and she was like, here's my card. We'll meet up at this Panera on a Saturday at two and I'll just tell you what I think. And I was like, so grateful for those 30 minutes of her time. Makes a big difference in your whole life, doesn't it? It really does. I think that that was right before my interview for my school that I go to. And I remember talking to her about it. I was like, I'm not sure if I should go or, or not. Like, is this worth it? And she was like, give it, give it a shot. She was like, I've never heard of that school, but just because I've never heard of it doesn't mean that it's not good. Just go. Yeah. And hopefully your podcast will help a lot of people in similar positions learn real facts about these processes and what to really expect. Because you're right. No one really talks about when they don't do well on a test or they haven't done as awesome as they could have or things like that. No one talks about that. Everybody always makes themselves seem a lot better than they really are. So we get a, a, a false perception of what it, what kind of people are going to medical school, frankly. So yeah. Good. And you get social media, like TikTokers, pre-med accounts, glamorizing pre-med and medical school when that's not anything like what it's like. Now, how many osteopathic schools are there now in the United States? There are 38 accredited programs. So they have to not all be the same. I know that a lot of them have a bigger emphasis on different curricular styles, like problem-based learning versus, you know, other ways of presenting the curriculum, different organizations of the curriculum, different teaching styles. A lot of things I'm sure nowadays are on Zoom or some sort of conferencing thing versus in person or not. Some of them have cadaver labs for anatomy. Some of them don't, things like that. And obviously they're all around the country in different locations and things like that. So when you're thinking about these schools, I mean, how do you rank them? How do you know? Or what, what, what should I think about if I were a candidate to think about which of these schools is most important to me? 
I, I would say number one is if it resonates, if their mission resonates with you. I think that every school kind of has their own mission statement, whether they're trying to serve a specific population or they're trying to make doctors um, specifically primary care. I think that identifying with the mission of the school is very important. In addition to physical location, like geographic location, are you going to be close to your support system? Medical school is so hard that taking yourself across the country from your entire family is probably going to give you some some struggle. Um, so those two things are are things that you need to be thinking about when you when you talk about whether or not they have a cadaver lab or they have specific learning styles. Those are things that you can find on the websites for these schools. And you have to think about, OK, am I am I going into maybe a surgical subspecialty? Do I really need an in-person cadaver lab or am I going into something I'm completely turned off by surgery. That's not my thing. I can do an online cadaver lab and that would be completely fine with me. Um, so that would be an example for that. And then different curriculums. My school personally has a curriculum set up where you can, you can watch at home. Um, I think that that's really nice personally because I can fall asleep in, in lecture halls very easily, uh, but that's not for everybody. Some people need to be there every single day. And then for problem-based learning, I think that a lot of schools have adopted that, which I don't think that I would succeed with that, but that's more of a, they give you kind of a scenario and you have to work in a team to figure out the answer or the plan. Well, I do definitely see where different styles of, of students would appeal to different things. I think for me, I would love to be in class. I don't think I missed a day of class in med school. They used to make fun of me for that. But, you know, I'm a I'm a people person. I need to be there and be engaged. And I love problem-based learning. I, I, I love to use it as a way of teaching, and I loved it as a student, too. So clearly people have different preferences, but you can be successful in different ways. And so if you don't know what your preferences are on some of those things, then that might not be helpful. But it's definitely something to think about. And I definitely agree that location is everything. Like, live in a place you want to live in, you know, and... Big cities are not necessarily better than rural locations where a lot of these schools are cropping up to serve underserved communities. Cost of living, certainly something to think about. Medical school tuition is very expensive. And a lot of that goes back into what your apartment costs and you know things like that, money that you're borrowing for, for a number of years while you're living there. And it certainly is going to cost you more in many cases to live in and go to school in a bigger city. But I would want to be close to my significant other or family or whoever my support people are or my friends or things like that. So certainly my advice has always been to really emphasize location, maybe as the number one thing. I agree. I did not do that. <laughs> but I moved from Florida basically halfway across the country. And it definitely was hard. I didn't, I didn't think that it would be as hard as it was, but it definitely was. And that leans... Onto it, another good point, which is when you're in med school, it's very, very important that first week or the week before med school, when you're kind of meeting everyone to establish some connections early on and, and meet people that that you can rely on throughout med school, because those people are going to get you through the next four years. Yeah, you're definitely going to have your med school family, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So 
you've scored some interviews. You're you're a med student. You've scored some interviews and gone through the application and all that, done your work. What are the interviews like? I'm I'm sure a lot of people are scared of that process. Yeah, and I think that interviews are have changed a lot since COVID. I think that a lot of I mean, obviously during COVID they were all online, but I remember when I interviewed, I had a group interview for one of the places that I interviewed at. And that was that was very scary for me. It was kind of fun because you get to listen to other people's responses. But what happens when another person says exactly what you were going to say? That's kind of kind of scary. Um, but yeah, it was fun to be able to travel across the country and and see where these schools were. You can pick up the vibe a lot easier than on Zoom, see people's faces around campus. Do they look happy? Do they look fulfilled or are they kind of just down? You also have to think about whether or not it might be exam week because I know that I definitely looked a little down (laughs) when it was exam week. But the in-person interviews one-on-one with another staff or faculty member were definitely my favorite. I feel like you could really dive in a little bit deeper without feeling like you were in a crowd. Yeah, I definitely still remember mine from 24 years ago. Don't let everyone know how old you are, Dr. Harrell. It's probably Googleable, Googleable. But yeah, and I you know, and obviously if it's in a city or a place that you're not familiar with, I imagine even if I had a Zoom interview, I'd want to go visit the city and see if this is a place I want to live. And I definitely recommend doing that even when they're on Zoom, you know, make yourself a little a little road trip and go across to every location that you have interviews at just to scope it out. See if there's the, your favorite food is available. Cause I know that mine was not available nearby my school. So I had to make it myself. And of course, if you do that, stop by the med school for sure. Talk to the mm-hmm. Dean of admissions, let him know. It really shows how interested you are, especially if you traveled and you didn't need to, to come see the campus and take a tour or things like that. But don't move somewhere for four years without doing your homework first is is the main point. So now you, you had a gap year, right, between college and starting med school. Yeah, so I graduated college a, a half a year early, and then I took an additional year. I personally waited to take the MCAT until after I had completed undergrad, which I think is also a hot topic. A lot of people that I knew took the MCAT while they were in the middle of, you know, our physics class. I remember going to class and this girl was telling me how she had the MCAT tomorrow. And I was like, girl, why are you in class? (laughs) But um, I personally waited. I felt like that was the right decision for me. I think gap years are more common with younger people who want to kind of maybe take a year and travel or experience life or do something else. And obviously a lot of people take them because they need to, they need to work on their score or they need to maybe pursue a master's or do some extra research or something like that to buffer up their score a bit. But they've never been that uncommon. I remember in my medical school, which had 60 students, I believe there were only 12 of us who had not taken a gap year. So 48 students had had at least one year between college and starting medical school. And in some cases, they had careers between starting college and or stopping college and starting medical school. So don't feel bad if it takes you a year or two to get it right. And you may look back on that year or two as valuable time where you got to either learn some stuff you to keep with you or to have some experiences that you wouldn't have time to do later on. Yeah, I agree. I gained a lot of life experience and perspective in that year and a half. Um, so I would highly recommend if 
if even if you didn't feel good about you know your scores and stuff i would still apply but don't feel any shame for taking a gap year i almost ended up taking an additional gap year while i was applying to med school i didn't think that i was going to get in anywhere i interviewed everywhere really late it was i was considering retaking the mcat at that point and i actually applied to a master's program nearby where i was living and i got in and I actually rented an apartment and I got all ready to move in and start this master's program. And then I got the call that I got in. So did you get your deposit back? No, I actually lost probably $2,600 and had to sublet this apartment. It was horrible. <laughs> well, money well spent. And But you also made it a productive year. You did research. You did things that helped and augmented. So it's not like take the year off and just backpack Europe. It's you're using this to improve yourself, improve your application, or let's say you apply and don't get in, like take serious feedback of what your weaknesses are or what you need to work on and take a year and improve them. I think people sometimes yeah. are hesitant to do that. You know, no is not no. It's you need to work on this aspect or we need to see more something in your application. And, and I think lots of deans of admissions are happy to share that with you. Yeah, I agree. I also think that you know, while you are accruing new new experiences, something that I didn't realize that you could do is you can actually reach back out to the admissions as you get, you know, oh, I just published a paper, but I already interviewed there and their decision hasn't been out. I'm waitlisted. Let them know. Let them know that you just published something. Um, let them know that you're working on something. It just shows that you are continually interested in their program and you're continuing to add to your CV. You can definitely work the wait list if you get waitlisted for sure. I think that I work the wait list. <laughs> One of my good friends in, in medical school, I think was accepted three days before classes started. You know, some people pull out, they go to another school. And like you said, they get that call after they've already rented the apartment in the other place. And here you are, you know, so definitely take opportunities if you're waitlisted to try to show them your interest and, and improve. So I, a uh, more traditional candidate or whatever, I, I'm probably not even the traditional candidate. I was, I went, I applied to one med, med school because I applied through an early decision program. And then I think was the first, I believe I was the first person accepted because of this early decision program, which meant, I remember it meant that by August of senior year in college, I already had been accepted. So oh my gosh. I'm on the other spectrum of the, of that. <laughs> But when do you typically find out, like in that year leading up, if med school starts in July, when do you typically find out that you're going to be accepted? Like what's the range of that? Certainly not usually August the year before. There is a huge range. So it's kind of on a rolling basis when as soon as you hit submit in June, they review your applications and then not too long after that they start interviews and i interviewed very late for both of the places that i interviewed at i think i interviewed in like february and march which is considered late um and then i got accepted as late as may for for one of them so i think that you can be accepted like you said up until two days before classes start in july i know one person that that happened to but as early as your first interview. Yeah. Like I said, so if I was accepted in August of the year before to that class, then my friend I was mentioning was accepted probably in, I'm guessing in July. It's, it's very complicated because 
you know, you, you commit to a school, they, they need your decision within so much time. So they give you that call, hey, you're accepted. Are you accepting us back, basically? And you need to tell them within 24 hours if you're going to accept their, their spot. The problem is, is that you can always pull out if a better offer comes up. And that's where the wait list comes in. So it's kind of a rolling thing until classes start. Some people may be holding several admissions trying to decide where they want to go at the last minute. Yeah, which is problematic. But, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And then be ready to take advantage of their selfishness when they relent, I guess, at the end. But Yep. Well, there's a lot more that certainly that I'm looking forward to your podcast. There's a lot more about all of this than we certainly talked about. Once you get accepted, you've got to find apartments and move in and meet new people and start school and... I imagine that you'll spend uh, a lot of episodes just talking about uh, getting through school itself and things like that. But this is exciting. I think that you're going to help a lot of people understand this process. And and the thing I'm excited about what you're doing is just bringing some honesty to it. Like I said, people don't typically talk about sort of their struggles in getting into medical school. There are people like me who talk about, oh, yeah, I was accepted early decision to the first place I applied to. But that's just not the norm. And it gives people a false sense of, of perspective about the whole process. And the other thing that excites me about it is that you're doing this because even though you had the struggles that you've already talked about, you're definitely among the best students I've ever seen. And so it just shows that the traditional process could run the risk of excluding a lot of really good people. And people should should know that and have some confidence about all this. Thank you. And I think that you outlined the whole mission of this podcast very well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I can't wait until the next episode. Thanks. I guess I'll maybe see you then, or maybe I'll have somebody somebody else pop on here to have a good, honest conversation with me. Yeah. Well, it sounds fun. Thanks for having me on. No problem. No problem.